Hello everybody and welcome back to the eighth episode of Girl Employee. Today it's a specific format that Carmen and I recreated. We are currently in the space of technopolitics in Vienna and we gathered together to basically introduce my new book in which Carmen participated, which is called Cycle, the Sacred and the Doom. And we're doing a soft book launch in technopolitics, Nolingasse 9. We're going to do a co-reading tonight and we thought it would be great for our audience and for everybody else to also know about this text. So today we'll basically be reading this sort of like a co-performative text that we co-wrote together. And uh, we hope that it's going to give you a nice insight on what the book is about and give you a little appetite for perhaps purchasing it or just recommending it to people who you think would be interested. It was quite important for me also to specify that it was very miraculous almost to make this book launch happen here because this is exactly where I met with Carmen almost a year and a half ago. Mm. We met during this book launch in which Carmen participated, Data After Nature After Nature. And it was very special evening for me because a friend brought me here and I looked into the book and there was a chapter wrote on Femtech by Carmen. This is how we met, how we started collaborating. So the fact that tonight we can actually be there together to also celebrate this book launch is very much a cyclical um, sort of closure for me with this project. And I am just very thankful for all of this. So we will start here by a short introduction on Femtech. Femtech, abbreviation for female technology electronic devices, software, or other technology relating to women's health, for example, software that records information about menstruation and fertility. In The Optimized Woman, Miranda Gray suggests strategies and tools to utilize the different moments of a menstruating body cycle, hopefully making the best out of each situation. If I read the text like that on a good day, I interpret it as an exercise to see the glass half full and as the only positive way to deal with physical challenges and institutional recognition. An optimistic attempt to make the best out of the worst while inhabiting a menstruating body. On a bad day, I go insane thinking about how our bodies are so well trained to turn sadness and pain into profitability and creativity. Why? Why do we do this to ourselves? Realistically, one should not get mad at Miranda Gray, who's trying her best to make us feel more at ease in our bodies trying desperately to empower us through the exercise of clarity, precision, and planning while we suffer through our monthly bleeding rituals. Perhaps this is the least we can do, maximize a certain ease in our life, soothing our pain. Still I cringe and cry a little while thinking of this title, The Optimal Woman, when I think of myself who, like many others, trying to get ahead in a world that wasn't designed by any of us, for any of us. To be optimal, that deceiving trap of an idea. But for what? And for whom? Planning your life based on your cycles in one of the many ways a menstruating body can become optimal. It's about ensuring nothing important happens before and during the hair week. Quite often, this implies limiting your activities and decisions for approximately 10 days a month, a rather big obstacle to our efficiency, to the least. A practice that makes you wish you never had to stop, never had to pause, so you could endlessly just thrive. Instead, you sit there, hating yourself because you assume your body is dysfunctional in some way, all the while putting in information about your cycle on the Clue app, and then you start wondering, how great would it be if you could just cut out your lower organs altogether? Could you then, perhaps, be optimal? 
Video game company Activision Blizzard made headlines in 2019 when it came to light that they were paying their female employees one US dollar a day to track their health and menstrual data via the fertility and pregnancy app Ovia. Ovia was offered to employees as a tool to manage their own fertility and health. What employees did not know was that this data was shared with managers and human resources in an anonymized aggregate form. Ovia pitches their services to companies as a way to cut insurance costs from unpredicted fertility-related surprises. In response to these anecdotes, it may be enticing to descend into data anxiety or Zubofian warnings of Big Brother surveillance with its libertarian undertones. But I wonder, what kind of ideas arise when we address this anecdote with not a how, but with a why? Why is it advantageous, advantageous for companies to have their employees track their health data? Path of fertility, the temporality of menstruation, the awareness of flow and sync. Why are these loops something within the radar of the corporation's interest? How does the body and its patterns link with the interest of the corporate corpus? The corporation, hierarchically integrated, bureaucratically complex, where cooperation is necessary and the worker's management of self is, to quote Eva Iluz, a problem to resolve through protocols of empathy and care. At a time, the stage set of the firm was cubicles and pinstripes. Today in Techland, the spaces may be sharing desks, houseplants, sponsored yoga classes and wellness packages, facilitated, facilitated through wearables and sync devices. Functionality, on so many levels, is a precursor of employment. To call Raquel Holnick, in the neoliberal period, the same individual is now split into both these components, the entrepreneurial self and the self-exploited proletarian. As split selves, with an inner manager exploiting an inner worker, workers are induced to quantify and regulate their own bodies, end quote. I imagine this as two little miniatures of myself inside my body, which more and more appears to me like an office. Inside this office, they sit opposite one another on brown couches. One of them is positive, charismatic, charming, and enticing. This person... Person 1 dresses in oversized muted tones and uses the word lovely and remembers to drink water. She sets reminders on eye calendar and goes on morning jogs. The other, person 2, overshares, forgets things and smokes too much weed. She dodges intimacy and runs away often, spilling things slightly on herself but not enough to justify changing. Person 2 advises person 1 and person 1 uses person 2 as a way to rationalize their path to self-improvement. Digital contraceptive technologies promise a health service. They will be the tender guiding hand to help you understand yourself. They promise to offer you the answers by providing the tools for you to find the answers yourself. This is a process that is indicative of a structural and epistemic shift towards the self, a movement which has continually shaped the structures of the corporation and the economy at large. Indeed, self, as measured and as measurer, is the fundamental building block to any economic structure founded on cooperation, on the necessity of communicating, functioning, mutually informing bodies and languages in curated space. Indeed, to be a functioning worker in a connective capitalist market does not mean that you perform the task assigned. It means that you hold the tools to regulate your ability to self-manage and self-measure. It means that you hold the tools to orient temporarily and bodily, allowing you to know when and how tasks can be performed in keeping with the temporality of the firm. To be regular and regulated in a bodily sense means the ultimate supremacy of mind of a body, Cartesian binarism cemented through algorithm and body awareness. To go back to the optimal woman, the optimal woman is a self-regulated regulator.
Yes, she menstruates, but she will never accidentally bleed through her trousers on the brown shared office couch for her co-worker to see. Femtech, one whose mission is to change the conditioning of female bodies, to vary the treatments and expand its knowledge and accessibility. A revolution in the category of technology and digital health solution designed to address women's health needs and well-being, including issues related to reproductive health, menstruation, and menopause. Now, how did this miracle come to life? As we started to face the deterministic realization of our conditioned bodies, researchers and tech experts began to assemble. Together, they aim to develop new tools and concepts to help our bodies and their technologies in everyday life. Femtech, a brand new industry born from the next generation of individuals, an army of strong, ambitious warriors ready to offer wellness, even a sense of conformity to menstruating bodies. Rather than adhering strictly to the dichotomy of returning to nature or emancipating from it, this new project aspires to carve out a space somewhere in between. Femtech is an alliance of ancestral knowledge, or form of rituals, mixed with digital devices and high-tech tools to enhance the experience of monstering body. Femtech is a thermal ring you can put in your vagina to track your temperature. Femtech is a menstrual app that predicts the worst moments of your cycle to make a business deal, aka girl boss at her finest. Femtech is a DIY kit to test your fertility and its expiration date. Femtech is your phone becoming your very own gynecologist. Fluids are the issue, digital is the recipe. The world that Donna Haraway dreamt of mixed with the nuances of Silicon Valley. But this collective interest in women's health isn't that avant-garde per se. Looking at the past, the women's health movement of the 60s and 70s already transformed the doctor-patient relationship, which held the rather novel concept that women should take control of their health themselves. Red, mostly male doctors didn't know how to handle it and still don't. Through protest, DIY self-kits, such as the famous Dell-M, and various waves of rebellious propaganda, women tried to ensure a new era of care that would go beyond institutional recognition and acceptance. Almost 50 years later, sadly, these goals still haven't been reached. However, it's hopeful to see a more global movement, one of conscious and physical awareness, leading women and menstruating bodies to develop a critical caring attitude towards health and care. What obstacles might one encounter when trying to design an advanced technology and newly invented philosophy for inclusion and care? For most of my life, I have been afraid of my body. The fear came from losing control of it, its urges, its slippages. I was afraid of bleeding on the floor, insatiable sexual desire, contracting venereal diseases, getting cancer. In the early 2000s, technology was a dear false friend in navigating these anxieties. WebMD, Googling symptoms, online chat rooms, Reddit, I tried it all. The digital world was my doctor, my companion, my ultrasound, transfusers, and dictionary for measuring modes, numbs, and itches. It was the place where the fear of my body could be measured, navigated, and understood, specifically coming from a Catholic family, where I was taught that you could detect your fertility from the elasticity of your labia. Indeed, these online conversations often achieved a contradictory effect entirely. The information resulted in more fear and anxiety, affirming my wildest and deepest fears through the fantastical bringing together of tales from all ends of cyberspace. I remember a four-day conversation with a woman on Reddit, doglover987, telling the story of the way she contracted chlamydia from the toilet seat of a nightclub which led to almost infertility. One of my biggest fears was becoming a teen mom because I wanted to be extremely successful professionally by the age of 25 and believe an accidental pregnancy would deter me from this. The first time I ever had sex at 15, we used a condom that I got for free in a book shop in Soho. 
The person I had sex was named Guthrie, after Woody Guthrie. We had a two-week romance, after which he told me he didn't feel like seeing me anymore because I was too emotional. I thought about him every day for two years. We had pathetic sex for approximately 45 seconds before we stopped because it hurt and because I was too nervous. Over the course of the next day, I was overwhelmed by nausea. I went to the internet. What does it mean if you have nausea after sex? The answer from Reddit, pregnancy. Thus began the spiral. I found a hotline from Planned Parenthood and told a woman on the end of the phone line that I was showing symptoms of pregnancy. Assuming I had received a positive pregnancy test, she began to relay the options. Under the age of 18, an abortion would be difficult. She told me if I received positive pregnancy test, it would be necessary for me to visit my general practitioner to have it assured clinically. I entered the doctor's office, exploding with tears, already imagining whispers of teachers and friends as I walked out of school, carrying my books. I imagined myself being 30, lamenting, drunk to someone in a bar about how I wanted to be a writer and an academic, but devoted my life to my child instead. The doctor erupted into laughter when she found out the details of my predicament. She was slightly rude and had lipstick on her tooth and a necklace with a small diamond on it. She pointed me in the direction of online resources for information on contraception and fertility. I relay this anecdote as an indicator of the wild west of women's health online, pre-contraceptive apps. It is easy at times to romanticize the unstoppable flows of information that circulated prior to the major enclosure of the digital world in an expanding network society. But my struggles with understanding my fertility became something that followed me through adolescence and adulthood. Like many people, I experimented with and struggled with almost every form of contraception available. I tried out an FMT app when I was a master's student in London. When I first began using this app, this, I felt very organized and, for lack of a better word, together. I took note of my temperature and, in the process, became increasingly aware of time. I ate apples in the morning and bought a planner for the first time in my life. It was pale green Helvetica font. Many friends will tell you I became a bit smug about my use of what is indeed an ancient practice, which seems like a valid alternative to hormonal invasiveness of birth control and its patriarchal and colonial history. The algorithms and the overall technological mediation was simply an accelerated and expanded efficiency of what was intuitive knowledge of the pre-enclosed commons. Maybe for a moment it could be an example of what laborious Ubonics theorizes in engineered technology, which offers expanded reproductive tools a protocol for xenofeminism. Sure, it was digitally invasive and certainly for profit. Reading, reading Preciado at the time and his ideas of hot psychotropic punk capitalism, I thought about the uterus, the thermometer, the data center, fiber optic cables, interface design, board meetings and mass-produced adverts that configured the aggregate of the app I was engaging with daily. This may be the biotechnologies combined to produce... This may be another example of the enmeshed architecture of advanced techno-capitalism, global media, biotechnologies combined to produce and reproduce system of gender differences, and iterative hegemonies through somatic visual imaginaries. I wrote about this and thought about this. Between periods of reading, I was waiting tables and babysitting on top of my master's degree to pay the high London rent prices. My life did not resemble the aspirational, organized, self-managerial wellness relayed in the Natural Cycles advert. The punky idea of contaminating FMTs through intentional use was diluted by the fact that the only way for the app to work properly was to flatten or regulate my lifestyle into what was required for the app's functionality. I worked until late, partying until the morning. I was irregular, atemporal, short on cash, and stressed. I was single and not monogamous. One instance, I remember accidentally dropping my thermometer onto the floor of the tube as I crammed myself onto an overly crowded jubilee line. 
I was not leading a kind of life where the first thing that came to my mind in the morning was recording my basal body temperature. I recall a conversation with a friend, Olivia, which encouraged me to, to break up with this app. She said something to the effect of, yes, it can work, but people's bodies are not calculators, they are prone to glitch, and this app functioned by and through an aspiration of glitch-free, calculable existence. And no offense, but you are not really the most calculable of people. The potential for glitch is not something which is openly stated or conveyed via the company's media campaigns, but instead actively obscured through language aesthetics and a calculated media strategy, one which has been targeted as being deeply misleading and therefore ethically dubious. Flow, natural cycles, or clue. Nowadays, all of these simple digital calendars make one's body aware of itself, prepared for the storm that's about to come. Thanks, thanks to my Femtech app, I could trace, notice, and chase my mood swing or pains throughout the month. Certainly, I could have done all of this manually, writing everything I detected into a calendar of my own, but I never did. If handwritten journals can get lost and thoughts written on paper disappear over time, data traces on my phone followed me steadily wherever I go. In essence, many femtech apps answer relatively simple queries. Journaling, experiencing, tracing temperature, tracking fertility. The initial purpose of these apps is not to dictate the desires of a body, but rather to be able to observe patterns and unpredictability. For many, these apps are tangible evidence and validation of their experiences. Nothing else in the world could have demonstrated that, on my 19th birthday, I had gone without menstruating for a whopping 70 days. My app did, however, looking back. I don't recall my early time on menstruation apps very vividly. What I do remember is that in online communities, the names Flow and Clue were spreading around like holy water. Individuals started to check their menstruation tracker before actually agreeing to meet up. Planning holidays, work, long-distance relationship dates, all of this happened in the light of the knowledge that, to the due to the menstrual cycle, one would become a monster for a few 78 days, and one would have to schedule to survive before slowly but surely preparing to feel fine again. All of this I did myself with the help of the menstruation app. However, my empirical research for this app while being on birth control was, to say the least, biased. I mean, girl, why would you need to track anything? Hormonal birth control was planning these regular, pain-free cycles for me. So definitely not 70 days without menstruating. Ovulating, bleeding, full of life or dying, pink, red or nothing in between. As a result of these monolithic feelings experienced within the apps, many female researchers started to investigate just how these platforms reinforce heteropatriarchal stereotypes, seeing how the aesthetics of such apps were not only soaked in conventionally sensual and feminine designs, but also that femtech apps ended up falling back into the patriarchal. When I log acne or weight gain, I immediately receive instructions on how to fix my symptoms from the app flow. The app instructs me to do specific exercises, to eat vegetables, to change my sleeping schedule, and even to engage in sexual intercourses as stress relief. The intimate and affective experience of users are then shaped and modulated by self-trackers to reproduce and discipline the fertile body and sexual female body to be a productive laboring body and heterosexual attractive feminine subjectivity. When one starts think of an ideal design or even a non-oppressive gentle platform, things starts to get tricky. It becomes clear in researching the app that the self-monitoring and regulatory lifestyle revealed in the adverts is not only a seductive media strategy, but a necessity for the technology's functionality. The engagement with community affirmation via paid influencers, which suggests transparency, authenticity, and honesty, is a strategy necessary to legitimize themselves and a privatized health market system. The necessity for users to engage in detailed self-monitoration 
and regulation and the danger if they do otherwise is not presented with clarity but instead desperately avoided only to be implied or nudged through the visual culture of the media campaigns. This nudging evades and packages what is indeed an entangled, vulnerable architecture in constant dialogue with glitch potential. The visual culture of FMTs are not simply describing a product. They are presenting and fashioning a world in which this platform makes sense, temporally, aesthetically and otherwise, in all of its associative and affective connotations. In the femtech world, the aesthetic exists on the line between affective human emotion and algorithmically constructed subjectivity. These lines thread in and out of the devices which the architecture requires us to interact with, constantly, in order to function. This relates to what Bernadette Kretsch describes as the visual hegemonies of lifestyle typologies produced in and through cultural capital generated by aesthetic workers or influencers. The loathing natural cycle woman is the aspiration of fully self-optimized individuality, packaged in pale blue and soft non-invasive naturalism. It is effortless in its meticulous curation, natural in its regulation, and intimate in its aesthetic standardization. In the platform world, what should not be seen is denied a vocabulary and the represented format to be seen. Platform capitalism thus functions in and through the representative economy of the techno-social. In the case of natural cycles, this cropping or lack of admittance to the possibility of glitch has the potential to have deeply damaging effects on people's lives, leaving what some previous users who have become pregnant through using these apps feeling deceived by what they believe to be a medically legitimate technology. I always love to shower around the seventh day, finally clean, finally renewed. Still not at my cutest. My hair cut off greasy from the hormones. In the evening, I grab my phone and log into field. I don't know what exactly I'm looking for, but I need attention. I have a partner and great friends, but I demand care. Something lingers in the way I carry myself, how I walk around the world. My stomach is now flat, my cravings are gone. I am the dream girl. I feel hot and smart. I desire and I am desired. I stare back because I am young flesh, young blood, and it feels so rare, so intense to feel adequate. Something in the smell of others, in their movements, and suddenly I could hug the entire planet, perhaps even make out with it. Lips on soil on earth on everything all at once. I wish I could be that girl all of the time, could live on a dazzling cocktail of ostrogen and serotonin, never get old and always want to fuck. 24 years old, in my luteal phase, I am now optimal and will never get any better than this. I wake up in the morning acknowledging the time already passed, a time that will never return. I look at what I already possess. It's not much, but everyone says at least I have time. I have youth. Thank you so much for listening to this text. Um, we will make sure to put in the description um, an extract of it and we will also make available the link of the book. We will soon start a Patreon that we will also share with you in which we will share further reading lists and references and this is a way for you, our listeners, if you appreciate our work and the activism that we're doing for having this podcast to support us in some sort of ways.